Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, a study in Montreal is making the case for keeping kids at home. The study claims schools are a major vector for COVID-19 transmission. We'll have one of the authors of that study to explain. The Canadian Medical Association Journal is reporting that for-profit long-term care homes have larger and deadlier COVID-19 outbreaks than non-profits. There's a lot of reporting on this, and we'll try to give you some of the reasons for that in just a couple of minutes. And Donald Trump has become the first U.S. president to be impeached twice. What's next? Well, we'll talk about it. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. I want to talk about schools right now because they are impacted by this as well. You know, in in December, we were told by the Education Minister, Stephen Lecce, that there was going to be no extension of the Christmas break. Kids are going to get back to school because their data showed that it's actually safer for kids to be in school than it is for them to be at home as far as COVID-19 is concerned. And there have been contrary opinions to this, and which is, I think, one of the things that's, that's really muddying the waters. Uh, as a matter of fact, you may remember on the program uh, a week or so ago, uh, we had a discussion with Dr. Martha Fulford, who's a pediatric infectious disease specialist at McMaster University Children's Hospital in Hamilton. And uh, she says that, uh, well, they think the Ford government should not have extended the school closures at all. And so the conversation about schools is not just the immediate uh, question about whether or not shutting them is going to control the spread. And, and most of us work in pediatrics are skeptical that closing schools is going to make much difference, if any. But we are profoundly concerned about what's happening to our children long term. So we're talking about uh, whether or not kids should be in school. And as you know, part of the uh, lockdown order from the Ford government was basically to extend the school closures uh, for another few weeks anyway, including uh, areas like, well, Hamilton, Toronto, and a number of other what they call hotspots. But is it the right policy? Well, two scholars at the University de Montreal, a researcher at COVID Ecole Quebec, and uh, one person from George Washington University in the United States, have conducted a study in Montreal between August and September, and they claim that schools are a strong vector of transmission of the coronavirus. Joining us to talk about this is uh, Simona Binyami, who is an associate professor at uh, McGill University involved in the study. Uh, professor, thank you so much for the time. Glad you could join us today. Thank you. Good morning. Uh, congratulations on the work. I know I, I read the overview of this. It's a very extensive study. Why is there so much misinformation or contrary information about this topic? Well, I mean, the, the data, I mean, are difficult to assemble and to come by, and there is a lot of indigeneity, right, between transmission in schools and transmission in the community. Uh, a lot argue that schools are part of the community, and therefore that to separate the two is fundamentally incorrect. For us, the goal was uh, to try to figure out what happened in Montreal after school reopened. And as you know, in Quebec, we have had very different measures that you have had in Ontario. Mm-hmm. Uh, Quebec has had in-person schooling since September. There has been maybe only a total of a couple of days that have been in distance learning. At the beginning for the whole month of September, even extracurricular activities were allowed. Masks were not mandatory. Uh, so, and masks have remained not mandatory under grade four of primary school, even after the measures were in a stricter measure of uh, partial confinement were introduced on October 1st. Um, and there is these, these argument that, that, you know, that has been put forward here in Quebec as much as in Ontario that ultimately schools reflect the level of community transmission. If community transmission is high, then transmission in school is going to be high. So the approach that we took was to say, well, in Montreal in September, like when school reopened, there was virtually no transmission. Half, almost half of the 27 neighborhoods had zero cases or less than five cases. And so we just tracked over time what happened as school 
reopened. And so we looked at weekly incidence rates. So we took the number of new cases in a week divided by the size of the population in different age groups. And we, and we took a look at descriptively what was going on. And what we saw is that incidence rates in kids, especially 10 to 19, rose much more and before incidence rates in adults 30 to 49 started rising. And we observed this, especially in the areas, like in the two health region in the west, uh, in the east, sorry, and in the north of Montreal, where there have been more schools that have declared cases and more cases declared in those schools. So this is why we put forward the, the suggestion that, uh, you know, tra- transmission in kids seems to have been an important driver of, of what has happened, of how the you know, the second pandemic wave has unfolded and schools has seen the main vector of that transmission. It, that's kind of a chicken and egg argument, though, here, isn't it, Professor? As you listen to some contrary opinions on this, and uh, your data, I think, is, is, is pretty solid here, uh, because the debate seems to be, well, you know, if we see a, an increased number of new cases in the community, of course that's going to be reflected because kids are going to get it. And uh, then there's the, what your point, study seems to be pointing to is, well, no, one of the reasons there's an increased number of new cases is because of what's going on in the schools. Uh, and and I, I don't know which side that our premier's on right now. I know Premier Legault in Quebec is is very concerned about this and would rather i guess see the school stay closed until he sees the numbers going down uh but but and you've got some data that really substantiates that well yes i mean it's totally a chicken and egg problem but for us the issue was like you know we looked the the, the neighbor of uh, the neighborhood of montreal nor i mean i'm sure you have seen in the news has been one of the worst affected right during mm-hmm. the first wave and also during the second wave why because there is a higher proportion of immigrants uh, who work in the health sector and so especially there we would have expected if the if the community transmission argument was uh, completely true then we would have expected especially there where those employments we know are at higher risk of, uh, of COVID transmission, we would have expected there to see a rise in incidence in adults way before it started rising in kids, whereas this is not what we observed. We observed rather the opposite. And I think also that, you know, this argument about this chicken and egg argument, I think it's also put forward too cross-sectional, right? We say, well, it's community transmission, it goes into the school. But I think that there is a cycle, and it's a little bit what we see in our data, right? Incidence starts rising in 10 to 19, then it starts rising in 30 to 49, and that is kind of this vicious circle that that um, uh, falls over all the other age groups. And this is particularly true, for instance, for, for the young, the 20 to 29, right, that we see mm-hmm. in September, they were the ones we know in Quebec, in Ontario, all across the world, they were driving transmission in the summer, right? Uh, so trans- incidents for them were still rising in September. And then when Quebec closed bars, restaurants, and gym at the beginning of October, incidents for 20 to 29 drops at one of the lowest level. But in December, like starting at the end of November, when that vicious circle I was telling you about between the kids and adults really picks up speed, also the t- it falls back also on the 20 to 29 and starts rising for them too. So what, what, what 
Let's let's take this information that, that that your study has shown here right now, and 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 explain to us exactly how the government should be able to digest this and, and develop policy on this. Because as you say, you know, as we go right across the country, we're getting different perspectives on this from different political leaders, uh, and and the numbers keep going up. I mean, I'm not sure so sure anybody's got it right. I think one of the criticisms I've had in Ontario here, uh, Professor, in the last little while, is I think our, the government for the most part does things in half measures as opposed to going right to the heart of the matter and trying to actually do something and we've seen that happen in other jurisdictions around the world in australia new zealand hong kong places like that where they have said look at this is what the data shows and this is what we're going to do you may not like it but it's going to be that way and they they flatten the curve we're not doing that here is is it because we're, we're taking kind of a nonchalant attitude toward this i mean look i mean we are very it, it for Arguing for, as it is called, like COVID zero, like the approach that's been taken in places indeed, like Asia, uh, Australia, New Zealand. I mean, we are we are not there, and I think it's really too late to try to go for that, right? Especially now, vaccines are in the picture, so it, it's a little bit different. But it is true, the numbers keep going up, and so what we have been arguing is that, you know, right now to try to. Right now, that the community transmission is so high, right? What I always say, even those who don't agree with my conclusion, right? That let's just look at where we are now. Now, tr- community transmission is high, and even for those who support the argument that it is community transmission, they are all going to agree that now that community transmission is high, it's going to spill over in the schools, mm-hmm. right? So, opening the schools in person for everyone to mandate in-person attendance for everyone and for all grades is going to drive up the cases. So what we, we have been arguing is to say we are the first to acknowledge I have two kids. I have two young kids. I know kids need to be in school, right? And nobody here is arguing that we need to close schools until the end of the year. But what we are saying specifically to Quebec, at least, let's try to limit the amount of kids that are in school right now so that for a short amount of time, so that then we can reopen schools for everyone safely uh, and without the risk of driving up the curve of infection again. Because in Montreal in particular, there are projections that show that dedicated hospital capacity is going to be exceeded in a few weeks. Mm-hmm. I mean, we know the Premier Legault announced that the cancellation of uh, specialized surgeries and other procedures, non-emergency visits, like we are there. It is the moment to flatten the curve. And I think that the more strict and aggressive we are right now, the more we're going to have chances to bring everybody back in person uh, in school sooner. Well, and we've got some history here, sadly, because this thing has been with us for about a year now, and we can harken back, I guess, to last spring, can't we, Professor, and, and look at those numbers. And uh, no matter which side of this discussion or debate you're on right now, uh, the numbers indicate that last uh, April, May, and June, uh, when the students were not in school, uh, the numbers started dropping. The new number of new cases dropped. Now, I know some people are simply going to say, well, it's because the weather got nicer and we started going outside, and I'm sure that was a factor. But, uh, you know, if, if they're closing bars and restaurants and thinking that's going to actually help to flatten the curve it would also stand to reason that maybe the the educational institutions are also as you say a vector for this as well and and uh, i i get that too i mean as parents we want to make sure that our kids are going to be healthy physically mentally and everything else but at the same time uh, are we putting them in a precarious situation here well so there are 
studies that have shown uncontroversially that in the spring having closed school has been probably the most effective measure to reduce the infamous R, right, the, 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 rate, the reproduction rate of the disease. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, those measures were not enforced alone, and so we know that closing schools only is not going to be effective in driving down R as much as if you close schools and you limit, you know, you limit the gatherings and you close bars and restaurants, so it's this packet of measures. So this is one, one side of the argument. What does closing schools do? Reduces the contacts. By definition, there are less people in circulation. The R is going to go down. Infection rate is going to go down. The question exactly. is for how long to keep them closed, because as we know, the pediatricians are saying this very well, that has very, very long-term consequences that are dire for kids. So the issue is when we should close them, for how long, and I think that at the level of community transmission that we are right now, it, would, it might, reopening the schools in person as it has been done here might reduce the effectiveness of all the other measures that have been put in place. And, and therein lies the problem. And yeah. again, well, you've been in lockdown in Quebec a little bit longer than we have in Ontario. Just Ours just started today, of course. Uh, and I, I suppose to, to substantiate this data uh, and, and this theory, you, you want to start seeing a drop in some of the new case numbers in Quebec. Have you seen that even begin to happen yet? So what we have seen, so one side is the absolute number and the other side is the incidence, this this measure I was telling you about. What we saw is that in our analysis that runs until January 5th is that two weeks after school closed, incidence in kids under age 19 dropped, whereas it was still increasing almost exponentially for all other age groups. So, you know, now we are observing a... I want to say a plateauing of the number of cases. There is still a lot of noise in day-to-day variation, especially in Montreal, uh, that reflects, you know, two to three weeks ago, right? So it it reflects Mm -hmm. that point in time. So we are now going to observe what has happened, what are the consequences of reopening schools, you know, until two weeks from now, or three weeks even, because secondary school is supposed to go back in person on Monday. Um, and be, this, this, is, this is maybe also what complicates assessing this chicken or egg problem is these delays, right? Delays in yeah. appearance of symptoms, delays in, uh, you know, testing and, you know, symptomatic versus asymptomatic testing. Like in Ontario, for instance, you are deploying rapid tests, which uh, here are, you know, to my knowledge, are not going to be deployed anytime soon. I mean, that's, that's an element. I don't want to tell you that that's the solution. That's an element. Uh, but if we compare Quebec and Ontario, uh, you know, results clearly show that in-person schooling in Quebec has produced almost twice as many cases in school as it has in Ontario, where you have had optional distance learning since the beginning, which here has yeah. never been an option. Well, we're going to be following the data and the, the results over the next little while, and this is a very important part of the discussion, uh, the, the, the material that you've uh, assembled with your uh, co-authors on this. Uh, Professor, thank you so much for the time today. I'd like to stay in touch, uh, and maybe we'll do a follow-up a little bit later on, and we can compare notes. That, but I really appreciate your time today. Thank you. Thank you very much for the interview. Thank you.
Thank Take you. care. Great talking with you. Professor uh, Simona Bignami from uh, McGill University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. One of the other, maybe the most controversial aspect of uh, government policy over the last year, really, since uh, the pandemic has started, has been the impact on long-term care facilities here in the province. It's, it's a national problem, and as we've been saying many, many times, uh, COVID didn't create many of the problems. What it did is shone a light on a lot of the problems that already existed in many of those facilities. And uh, the government has tried to respond. There was an independent review that was done some months ago, and uh, we talked to some of the folks that were involved in that, uh, you may recall, back in the fall. And we heard some horrific stories about uh, living conditions and working conditions, by the way, from uh, the people that work there and uh, some of the people who had family members in some of those facilities. You may also remember that uh, we also, just last week, I guess, talked about a study from the Canadian Medical Association Journal that uh, is reporting that for-profit uh, long-term care facilities have a larger and deadlier COVID-19 outbreak than non-profit homes. Uh, and that's one element of this, but uh, there's a lot of other folks that will say, no, that's not the case at all. Well, there is... Uh, Yet another study that has been done about this now that uh, may shed some light on this. Uh, joining us to talk about this is da- Dr. Andrew Costa, who is an associate professor in the Department of Health Research Methods, Evidence and the Impact at McMaster University. He also holds the Schlegel Research Chair in Clinical Epidemiology and Aging. Uh, doctor, uh, thank you so much for the time. Great to have you with us today. Good morning, Bill. Good to be here. You know, we're, we're inundated with statistics here, and, and we're trying to make some sense of this. And I guess uh, so are the people at Queen's Park that are trying to develop policy on this, especially when it comes to, to long-term care facilities. Maybe give us, uh, if you could, Doctor, to start off a little background on, on, on how you approach this problem. Uh, we approach it um, early on in the first wave and, and continuing right to today with the um, Ontario COVID-19 consensus modeling table. And we're we're basically vacuuming in as much data as we can so we understand, number one, what factors are contributing to um, outbreaks, which ones are the most priority that we can tackle, and which ones are modifiable, because they're not all modifiable in the same way. Um, as you said, we've had long-standing problems in long-term care that have been unaddressed for years and years over many governments, and we're seeing that now, and we can't address them overnight, and so to some extent we have to live with those. The the largest, the absolutely largest factor contributing to um, outbreaks and deadly outbreaks and deaths in long-term care and retirement homes, which account for 70% of the deaths in the province, um, has been, uh, frankly, the community transmission rates of COVID-19. Um, it is absolutely clear when you look at a map, when you look at the data, when you see cases spiking in the community uh, around a long-term care facility, uh, you set your watch to two weeks, essentially, and after two weeks, you will absolutely see um, mayhem in local long-term care homes. That's true whether they're for-profit, not-for-profit, new, old, large, small. But um, beyond that, there are some factors that can help us uh, determine which ones are particularly at risk. But it's absolutely the case that um, it, it is the COVID-19 transmission rate in the community that is the largest single factor. And right now, it's pretty high. I, I don't want to drag you into the political weeds on this one, but I mean, some, there, there's going to be some crossover here because obviously we've we've tried to get the government to get involved in this. I had the premier on the program back in the spring, and I'm sure we, our, our listeners all know that uh, the premier's uh, mother-in-law is, uh, actually was in one of these facilities, and uh, he committed on our program some time ago. He said, we're going to do something about it. And of course, they've got a, a panel that's trying to look into this. And uh, 
we're trying to get some results on this, but we've learned something, or have we learned anything from, from the first wave on this, though, Doctor? Because, you know, we heard, we heard uh, for instance, about one of the reasons for transmission might be the fact that uh, a lot of the workers in some of these facilities were actually working in two or three different facilities, and, and the, the, which, of course, would increase the chances of transmission and spread in situations like that. Uh, have we taken any of that information and, and tried to address some of these concerns? Because if and then the reason I'm asking is because the numbers are going up again, and you figure, wait a second, didn't didn't we learn anything from what happened last year? Yeah, and we've learned, and it's but it unfortunately it's like trying to uh, build a, a new house or learn how to new, build a new house, you know, during a hurricane. And if the hurricane gets worse, even though you've gotten uh, better in your skills, uh, it your result might be just as bad as what it was in the beginning. I'll give you an example. So uh, we've we, we've understood what causes transmission. Certainly. Uh, staff working in multiple facilities where staff live. Uh, and so the restrictions came in that made it so that staff were only working in one facility. But some of the issues is, is that we've learned if staff carpool, then that's an issue. And so that's being addressed, although not formally through rules that staff can't carpool, obviously, cause, uh, that would be uh, a bit different. We've introduced um, better testing. Originally, there was absolutely no testing in long care facilities. Now the testing is much better. It's not perfect. Um, it's a bit of a technology issue in terms of the kinds of tests that we have available and how quickly we can get the results back. But that's caused, um, of, of, that's been absolutely amazing where we've seen actually from the first wave to this wave, probably um, closer to half of the death rate, um, the case fatality rate, which means the proportion of individuals that die who get COVID-19 long-term care. And that's also been because the physicians in, in those facilities and the staff we understand much better how to treat COVID-19. That's true in hospitals as well. Mm-hmm. So we've gotten better and better over time. But um, when we see uh, COVID-19 rates spike as they do in the community, sometimes we can't keep up. And it, it basically boils over the top. And we're still seeing that. The good news is, is that if we were in the same situation that we were in terms of preparedness in wave one, as we are today, it would be uh, mayhem on a scale much larger. That's absolutely the case. Right now, we are... Um, we, we should feel a little bit fortunate that for most outbreaks are kept at the staff level because testing and PPE is so much better now that um, even though the outbreaks occur, they're much smaller. We do have some blowouts, some terrible outbreaks where uh, greater than 70% of the long-term care uh, residents are, are infected, but they're, they're sort of proportionally a little bit rarer now compared to the, the threat faced, but they're still a problem. I, I- don't want to oversimplify this, but uh, you know, as, as I read the overview of, of your report, the research that you've done on this, uh, there seems to be an indication here that the, the number of, of cases that we see in long-term care facilities, uh, as, as you just mentioned a couple of minutes ago, uh, could likely be simply a reflection on what's going on in the greater community. In other words, if, the, if there's a number of uh, increased cases in the community, you're probably going to see them in LT facilities as well. But having said that, it, uh, uh, the simple solution would be, well, uh, we, can we do a better job of screening people that go in and out of these facilities, whether they're workers, uh, even family members, things like that. Are we doing as good a job as we should uh, to stop that at the front door? You know, I'd like to see much better. I think we will. Right now what we have is that staff um, at these at the facilities have to be tested once a week or once every other week, depending on the threat level. And so they get a swab up the back of the nose. It uh, doesn't feel nice. And then we wait for the result to come back. The issue is, is that if you have... If there's an outbreak in your facility undetected, and that's your your testing, um, in the four, maybe three, five days it takes to get some test results back, it's already spreading if you're not careful. 
and that's particularly true in crowded facilities. Um, that's absolutely, you know, that's a nightmare scenario, and it's happening. And so what we need is more point-of-care testing. The government has rolled out a pan-bio test, which is a rapid test. It's still that terrible swab at the back of the nose, which people don't like. Um, and that's, that's one way. We, we do have better testing. It's research-grade. It's not clinical-grade. But we have been slow to roll it out, things like testing of saliva and so forth. And we haven't had enough focus and attention to scale those technologies because some of it is happening in the province, but it's happening not uniformly. Uh, you mentioned also, I want to talk about staffing and, and, and the folks that are actually working in some of these facilities. Uh, and I know that uh, you mentioned in the report that uh, that you it's very difficult to try to get data that, that can actually apply to this because uh, there's different ways of, I guess, of, of, of accumulating that data uh, in different facilities, different parts of the province. Uh, the, the non-for-profit, there are some houses, of course, that are owned by municipalities. We have some of those in Hamilton, of course. Uh, and then there's the, the for-profit, uh, which uh, you know, people seem to be focusing in on and looking at, at mortality rates, number of new cases, and saying, well, that's the problem. Uh, it's the for-profit people uh, that seem to be you know, where there are worse numbers and, and more problematic uh, situations in, in, in situations. What does your data show as you went through the, the, the data and the facilities that you looked into? It's, it's desperate times, and so we're all looking for um, reasons and explanations. And the trouble is, is that the reasons and explanations don't exist on their own. They exist together, and they relate to each other. And so um, if you just look at for-profit on its own, you see a difference. If you adjust for other things, like the fact that for-profits are more likely to be in urban centers, those urban centers are more likely to have um, uh, higher COVID community transmission rates, then it eliminates some of that difference. The, the biggest difference explaining that we found uh, um, why for-profits have larger rates is uh, mostly, be, mostly because they tend to be have older infrastructure and they tend to be a bit more crowded to that extent. And then that's becomes a very complicated issue because for municipal facilities and not-for-profit facilities, they're able to fundraise. And in the case of municipal facilities, um, they get better funding because of uh, the fact that, um, you know, every year we as communities vote in uh, um, additional budgets for them. They don't pay taxes on on the land, et cetera. And so there's some inequities and um, differences around building and infrastructure that happens within the long-term care sector. And we're seeing that at play now with COVID-19, whereas previously we wouldn't have seen it. And so it isn't the, it, people should be aware that if there is a small difference and there isn't a, if you adjust away some of those differences, there is no difference in for-profit per se. Um, but it is true that some of the worst outbreaks were in for-profit facilities. Um, but people should not expect that if their loved one is in a for-profit facility, that that person is substantially more at risk because it is not the case. Um, they're among some of our best and worst in the province, and um, they're in the majority of the facilities that we do have, uh, somewhere around 60%. Well, and, and I, I want to be frank about this, too. I mean, let's face it. I mean, one bad story can paint everybody with the same brush. We get that. And I, I mean, I know you're familiar with some of the horror stories we've heard about some of the privately run facilities in the Hamilton area you over bet. the last number of years. As a matter of fact, over the last 15 or 20 years, the, the, the one particular family that owns a series of them in the city have been uh, – 
problematic, shall we say, for a number of years. And it's, of course, been exacerbated by what's gone on with the pandemic. Uh, but you mentioned that one of the characteristics tends to be, first of all, as you say, they'd be in larger urban areas, which is going to increase the possibility of spread. Uh, secondly, though, you're talking about older facilities. Uh, would it not behoove the private owners then to, to, to reinvest in, in, in capital projects, and uh, whether it's new facilities or at least doing upgrades on some of the facilities that are there, in other words, to improve living conditions? You bet. I think I think it should have been the case. I, I definitely think that it's it's to those owners that have not done that capital infrastructure change. Uh, they are at fault for that. There's absolutely no question, and um, uh, it's something that's been lingering. Uh, you know, there's, there there hasn't been quite a, a fair playing field for that. There's some suggestion that the government should have done more to address the issue, uh, to provide some building incentives that there haven't been any at all to do it, and. You know, in the world, there's good intentions, and uh, then there are incentives. And we want to make sure that there are those incentives, because at the end of the day, we need to have a fair system, regardless of who's operating the facilities. And we need to be able to have a fair standard of care for anybody who would be admitted to any long-term care facility that's being um, heavily subsidized by our government. In, 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 in that same vein, though, Doctor, let me ask you something else. I just want you to address some of the things that we've heard as criticisms uh, that I'm sure that would have come up in your discussion as you were accumulating all this data. Uh, and, and again, the, 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 the privately run facilities that, that we've talked about that uh, a lot of folks are, are pointing the finger at right now. You've talked about the fact that they may actually be older facilities, and that's a problem, and I, I agree with you. I think there's got to have to be a discussion about how those things are going to get retrofitted. But the other is, is the number of people in the facilities. I mean, you know, when we hear about, uh, you know, three, four people in one room, uh, the, obviously the chances of spread are increasing significantly in situations like that. Some of the newer facilities, of course, don't uh, have that. They've got some cases private rooms or at least one or two people uh, with curtains. Uh, the population within the facility itself, I, I mean, are, are, are there guidelines that the province is setting out here? Is that, is that part of the problem? Uh, yeah, and some of the some of the old stuff got grandfathered in, and so back in the '70s we had this idea that long-term care was very institutional. It was basically just like a hospital for yeah. uh, old and in, indigent, and uh, so you had ward-style beds as hospitals used to have. Even that's changed over time, and so you're in a bedroom with three or four individuals separated by curtains. That old style we're familiar with, and for um, that, and then basically towards the '90s that started to change, and the ministry had released new design standards, and those were adopted and transformed. The issue is is that today it hasn't been totally uniform, that change. Um, now you can only be in a room with uh, one another individual. Uh, bathrooms are different. There's a whole, it's, it's much, much better. Um, it could be better, but it's much better from the 70s. And it hasn't caught up. And so right now for the for-profit facilities, which are about 60% of facilities in Ontario, about half of them are that old infrastructure three or four um, beds to a room. Um, that's not good for quality of life, certainly. It's terrible for COVID and infectious disease spread. Um, but we have to also recognize that it's not exclusive to the for-profits. And so about one in five or so of your municipal homes and not-for-profit homes, uh, they still have that old infrastructure as well. And it's really important to know that whether it's for-profit, municipal, not-for-profit, that old infrastructure matters regardless across the board, and it's devastating for COVID. 
staffing levels, and again, I know that can vary from place to place and community to community, but one of the criticisms, I'm sure you've heard, Doctor, uh, for many, many years now, has been that the for-profit homes tend to have uh, less staff uh, on hand than, than some of the others do and probably not making as much money, uh, which they feel is a factor. Did you get any data? Were you able to accumulate any information about that as, as you did your research? And you said it. Um, our limitation of what we did is that we don't have very good staffing records, and that's because uh, we just don't keep it in the long-term care sector, even though it's it's um, something that we heavily subsidize and we're paying for the staff together with our taxes. It, we need to improve on on that data. It's um, not a difference so much about <clears throat> the number of staff as it is about their longevity. And so there's not a huge difference in the amount of staff compared to um, for-profit and charitable and not-for-profit. It's pretty similar because uh, the government provides a stipend for any bed every month, which basically dictates the amount of staff available. And it's not enough across the board. That's one thing people should know. If we want to improve care, we have to increase that absolutely, and work is being done to do that. Uh, but it, it, that's, it's pretty uniform because uh, for that amount of money the government gives, it's not like any individual operator can choose to spend less on staff. They must spend that on staff. The difference is, is when you look at municipal facilities compared to the for-profit and not-for-profits because for municipal facilities, they have a very different staffing structure where um, their municipal employees get greater benefits, and there is funding levels at increase of about 25% above and beyond what would be available to uh, not-for-profit and a for-profit because we pay a little bit more our taxes to run those facilities. And uh, that, that's where you see the big difference. Um, so it's, there isn't a huge, huge difference in the number of staff, although it makes a big difference when you can increase it. It's mostly about longevity. It's about working conditions. And sometimes the working conditions are not as good in the for-profit facilities because they have more part-time staff. Um, and so you have a more frail sort of working group. And it's so important, and we're seeing it today, although we don't really see it in the data. Anecdotally, it's absolutely clear, um, which is that if you have staff that have been working in the facility for a long time, they know the residents, they know the facility, they know the structures, uh, they're more able to adapt to change. Whereas if you have a lot of part-time workers, a lot of new workers, uh, people that, um, frankly, are struggling to, uh, with their wages to um, do things in life. They ha- often have children. You're set, you have a little bit of a tinderbox when there's a challenge. And COVID has been an absolutely monumental challenge. That we've seen this over and over again, that when you have poor staffing, um, things get out of control pretty quick. I, I, just about out of time, I've got a minute or so left here. One other question, though, that I just want to run by you because I know that you've worked extensively on this, and 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 let's say I think we're all on the same t- page here. We we want to d- improve the facilities here. We want to improve the living conditions and working conditions in these facilities. But there is a criticism that's been ongoing for quite some time now that the industry itself, and by that I mean the the for-profit side of this, uh, may have way too much sway with the government when it comes to not just regulations but enforcement of regulations as well. And and I point, for instance, the the, the drastic reduction in the number of inspections that have been done over the last little while uh, since this government in particular took office. Uh, how do you address that? How do you address the fact that, that, that there seems to be, in some people's minds anyway, uh, two sets of rules uh, that, that are going on here, and which may actually cause some of the, the discrepancies that we've seen? Yeah, I think it's absolutely the case. As citizens, you know, this is a, a, a political issue. What we don't want is to have uh, individual interests, regardless of what they are, affecting the way policies are, are run for the benefit of of, our, of of the society, particularly where we are paying the buck around these beds. And, you know, frankly, there are family members, there are loved ones. 
And so we do need to address the fact that if there are um, uh, you know, political issues where um, certain groups have more sway in the health system, we really want to make sure we can't stop legally, obviously, that from occurring. But we really want to keep politicians' feet to the fire, that they're being honest and transparent in how they're making decisions and that they're, we're absolutely sure they're making it for the best um, for our residents, for our public, for our families. Very important part of the discussion. Uh, Doctor, thank you so much for uh, the work that uh, you and your team have done on this, and thanks so much for the time today. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. Take care. Dr. Andrew Costa uh, from McMaster University, of course, and uh, you can check out uh, the uh, paper itself. Uh, just Google the, the uh, outbreaks and uh, residential deaths, the CMAJ, and uh, you can get the uh, the full story on that. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let's talk about what's going on in the United States, and it's not a pretty picture in Washington, D.C. these days. We already know, of course, that yesterday the House of Representatives voted in favor of impeaching Donald Trump on a charge of incitement or insurrection, but there's a lot more to it than that. Sagar Magani has the details. It looked much different than the first Trump impeachment, which was strictly along party lines. This time, 10 Republicans voted with Democrats. No GOP senators have said they'll vote against the president during a trial, though leader Mitch McConnell says he is undecided, and if he votes to convict the president, some Republicans will likely follow. There is no timeline yet for a trial to start. Well, let's talk about that, and that's only one of the issues, amazingly enough, of what's going on in Washington these days. If you saw any of the, the news clips last night, of course, uh, there are armed, well, soldiers, uh, National Guard and others, uh, ready, willing, and now able, of course, to guard what's going to be happening during Inauguration Day, because there are now some more threats about per- further violence in not just Washington, but in other capitals across the, uh, the United States. Joining us to talk about all of this is uh, Brian J. Karam. Brian, of course, is executive editor of Sentinel Newspapers. He's a white host reporter for Playboy and a political analyst that you see on CNN. His podcast, by the way, just ask the question, is is always a, a great opportunity to get the real lowdown on what's going on in Washington and uh, U.S. politics. So Brian, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for the time today. Always a pleasure from this end, too. Thanks. Let me ask you, the vote yesterday, as we mentioned, invariably uh, these things will go along party lines. Uh, Ten Republicans decided to vote in favor of the uh, the impeachment yesterday, too. Uh, The number's interesting. Did it surprise you, though? Um, No. I'm not. Are you kidding? At this point in time, nothing surprised me. Uh, If they... I've said it before. If they walked out a dancing bear in, with uh, a, on a unicorn with uh, wheels and bells and whistles and said, "Here, here's your new uh, press secretary to brief you," I wouldn't be surprised. Um, no, it wasn't surprising that ten um, G- members of the GOP jumped ship and voted for impeachment. Uh, it was shocking that more did not, and it was uh, really enlightening that they came forward and said that, you know, some of them said they would have voted with impeachment, but they feared for their life. Um, That some of Trump's more uh, vocal and uh, mendacious supporters would come forth and kill them or kill their families or, you know, their wives. And that's, that's unheard of in U S politics. It it puts us flat right in the middle of of the pack of, uh, you know, third world dictatorships. And it's uh, frightening to see. 
Yeah, let's let's talk about the atmosphere and the climate in that city right now, Brian. I'm not talking about the weather. Uh, you know, we all know, of course, this is all because of what we saw last week with the the assault on the Capitol and and the death that occurred as a result of that. Uh, and now we're getting stories about uh, the possibility. Anyway, the FBI released a document, as you're reporting, uh, about the possibility of even further uh, violence, not just in Washington, but I guess a number of state capitals, if not all of them, I guess, are on high alert right now. Yes, all of the state capitals, all 50 of them are on high alert. Uh, there are some that would be more dangerous than others. I'm, I think Hawaii would probably be safe. Michigan, not so much. Um, but then again, the biggest concern is that there are 20,000 armed members of the National Guard camping out on the marble floors in the Capitol to ensure that the Capitol is not overrun by seditionists. Um, that is in itself inexcusable in a place that uh, claims that we're justice for everyone and uh, that, you know, equal rights for all. That's just hilariously. I mean, if you, if you wanted to write a dystopian novel, you couldn't have put you couldn't couldn't have made this stuff up. It's frightening. You know, it, I don't know how to put it other than the fact that I, you know, growing up studying American history and loving the ideal of the United States and reading the U.S. Constitution, and you see what Donald Trump has done with us in a mere four years, and it shows you how fragile democracies are and how you have to guard them by becoming involved. And the most frightening thing to me was all these seditionists who were preaching for revolution, and I asked many of them, I said, have you ever volunteered? Do you vote? Most of them haven't voted. They think it's rigged. Have you ever volunteered to work, you know, as a, a poll watcher or a precinct captain? None of them had. They lived in the darkness. They were brought out of the darkness, fed by Donald Trump into the light where they can espouse their wacky, weird theories and tote their guns and think that they are the government. And, you know, it tells you the mindset of these people that they were smearing feces on the walls of the U.S. Capitol. These are mindless children, delusional and a threat to the United States merely because they're armed. Yeah, as I was watching the horrific scenes, of course, from a week ago, uh, it brought to mind a couple, you know, a couple of movies, like White House Down and a couple of others. There was a Gerard Butler who did a movie, something about that too, about an assault on the White House. And, and part of the charm, I guess, of those movies, if that's the right word, was that we know it's never really going to happen, so it's, it's kind of a fantasy thing. It's happening. I mean, Washington is, is, was uh, last week and possibly could be under siege. I mean, this is a much different Washington uh, than we've seen for many, many years. I mean, I know that there was a tightening of security, Brian, after 9-11, certainly, uh, and I was there not, not too like long this, after though. that, but not like this. Yeah, this is, th this is protecting us not from people from without, but from people from within. And these are, you know, you, you refer to the movies, and there, there were some of them that I interviewed out there that going, wow, this is just like the movies, man. These are people who see movies and think that they're documentaries. They're completely delusional. And they've, tried, they've lived inside Donald Trump's head, not realizing that he's manipulating them. And for all of his congressional supporters, I would remind them this. Donald Trump put Mike Pence, the vice president's life, at risk. I was there when there were people shouting, hang Mike Pence. So if any of these supporters, 150 or 175 congressional supporters, still clinging to the notion that Donald Trump, A, either cares about them or B, cares about the United States, I would tell them that they're full of it and that Donald Trump is using him as cannon fodder. 
He cares about no one but Donald Trump. This is all a giant con to make money. This is all a grift. It's dangerous. And thankfully, this seditious activity will come to an end next Wednesday. What I pray for is that there's not that much violence. This is a violent country to begin with. Hopefully, we won't see anything outside of the... Here here I am praying that we have no more than the normal amount of violence on uh, on the day of the inauguration. There should be none. Are you, like many other folks in your Washington press corps, upset about the fact that uh, it's been over a week now since the, the assault on the Capitol building and uh, the Capitol City Police, and as a matter of fact, no police really have any sort of a, a media conference at all to explain what happened, what they're investigating, or what's going on? There seems to be a cone of silence over this whole thing. Well, they did have a, a brief news. Uh, th- there was a news briefing yesterday to tell us some of what was going on, but they had been noticeably quiet there it was it's obvious that there are at least two or three capitol police that are complicit in this donald Tr- look you could tell donald trump's fingerprints are all over this uh, you know it was liz cheney who said you know he he lit the match and he he started the fire and he urged these people to explosively riot um you can also tell that it's donald trump's fingerprints are on this because it failed and Part of the failure in what, what is uh, what is now part of the investigation, and I have faith, believe it or not, in the FBI still, they will find those, if there were members of Congress, if there were members more than the two or three in the police department that were complicit in this riot and this insurrection, they will be brought to justice. The reason why you didn't hear much from the beginning from the police department is because, A, some of them were quite stunned. Look, when I give them a lot of credit, because when it hit the fan, there were very few of them there. There were 500 lawmakers they had to protect, and they had a decision to make, protect the perimeter or protect the people. They wisely chose to protect the people and get them to safety before they then took on uh, the challenge of the people smearing you know, feces over the mm-hmm. Capitol and running away with you know, the lecterns and running through the... Uh, halls of congress dressed like chewbacca they they did they took care of all that afterwards the problem and the investigative part comes from the fact that why weren't there more police why did the planning fail why were there not more police there to begin with they knew there was going to be problems the governor of maryland asked and was denied a request to bring in the national guard from maryland for two hours why did that occur why were there so few officers why did some of them let seemingly let the insurrectionists into the Capitol. All those questions are going to take time. And quite honestly, I think the police were stunned by what happened. And that's part of the reason why you didn't hear from them for a while. And the head of the police department, the Capitol Police, quit. And Mm -hmm. uh, so did the sergeant of arms in the House and the Senate. There'll be a there's going to be a reckoning uh, because of this. And hopefully it'll be rooted and pared it out. Well, and we did see some some incredibly brave actions by some of the police too. The the, the one guy, of course, that led the whole crowd away from the Senate chamber that that could have been deadly had he, had they turned right instead of left as he followed made them chase him up the stairs, things like that. But there's another story that I wanted to get your read on, though, Brian. Uh, there was some reporting yesterday that uh, the day before the insurrection uh, that there was a, a, a 
member of the the, the House, of course, a, a congressperson, who is actually leading a a, a, a group of people around uh, and and basically showing them all over the, the state capitol, over the capitol building, about this, that, and this hallway, and what the, the state capitol is closed to the public. And I know that uh, there was some concern about this, but they said, oh, it's a congressman that's doing that. Let them do the tour. Well, it turns out that a lot of the people around that tour were some of the insurrectionists which only fuels this fire that this is an inside job, that there was some planning that went on in this. And we saw that with some of the video that we have seen in the last couple of days here, where the people that are bashing through the doors and the windows there are saying, we need to go down here. It's almost as if they had a roadmap as to where they wanted to go. Well, and that's going to be under, that's one of the things that are under investigation. I've seen the photos of that. Look, right now at the U.S. Capitol, because of the COVID virus, there are no tours. Yeah. So anything that, uh, you know, it'd be nice to find out what happened. I don't know for a fact when those pictures were taken. I don't know for a fact who was in those pictures. I know it's a a matter of contention and a matter of investigation. So let the chips fall where they may. If there was a member of Congress who's culpable in this, then that member of Congress should be expelled, prosecuted for sedition, and uh, made to face the charges. That is... There's no doubt that, you know, there was an in, it, it's an inside job. How high is it as an inside job? I mean, you had police officers taking selfies, and, and uh, there's video of them allowing people in. There's a I witnessed uh, myself, you know, <laughs> they were kind of walking through the, ro- the rotunda, and almost like they were a tour group, which I, 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 at one point I'm laughing. I'm going, you know, all you have to do is sign up for a tour. You don't have to, you know, storm the Bastille. But a lot of it was was just pure ignorance too. There's there's you know videotape of uh, and pictures of uh, people climbing the wall outside of the Capitol. I'm sure you've seen them. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, is you don't need to climb the wall. I I saw those people. I said, you know, you can just walk around to the steps and walk up the steps. A lot of it was for drama. Yeah. And I don't know who was involved in helping the drama. I don't know who was involved in, in uh, aiding and abetting them, but all of them who are need to face, you know, justice for that. And I think that the FBI will um, use, uh, the thing is, that since they were anti-maskers to begin with, it's made it a little easier uh, with facial recognition software to find out who they were. Mm-hmm. And even the guy that was masked up and had the zip ties and was hunting for, you know, Pelosi to arrest her uh, has been arrested. I mean, think about it. Outside of these, there were people in the U.S. Capitol who were there to harm, to maybe uh, kill the vice president and the Speaker of the House. That's the United States. That's not where I grew up. Well, the, as you say, the investigation will be ongoing. It's going to be interesting to see how that unfolds. I, I got about a minute left. Here. I want to get back to the uh, impeachment, if I could, for just a second. Uh, and, and you're right. I mean, some of the speeches that I heard yesterday were just flabbergasting. Uh, and, and of course, especially, I guess, one of the richest moments was was Jim Jordan suggesting that if this is impeachment, it's only going to separate the country. I mean, this this is the guy. I mean, along with Hawley and Cruz and a bunch of others that that perpetrated all this thing by by spreading the lies that Trump's talking about about rigged elections. And and everything they're part of the problem not part of the solution but i i get the one i want to ask you about is is this supposed equivocation by mitch mcconnell these days brian saying well i'm not sure uh whether how i'm going to vote on this do you really buy into that hmm. mitch mcconnell is all about mitch mcconnell he's more narcissistic than donald trump 
he wants to put together, and he does not like and has never liked Donald Trump. His statement is a clear signal to the members of the Senate to vote their conscience and not vote their party. And all the arguments I have with Mitch McConnell, and there are many, it will be telling if he decides to vote for impeachment, which I think he may be inclined to do. As he has said, the best thing for the Republican Party is to put Donald Trump in the rearview mirror. And that's true. However, the Republican Party has fractured. And there are plenty of people who still support Trump. The question will be, can the Republican Party survive without him or with him? Because Donald Trump is a toxic poison. And he has and will remain such as long as he walks the planet Earth. Uh, Brian, we're just about out of time. Always a pleasure having you on the program. I'll, I'll direct our listeners once again to your, your podcast. Just ask the question. Uh, always entertaining and always informative about what's going on in a very bizarre world uh, on the Beltway these days. Uh, stay well and stay healthy. We'll talk again soon, I hope. You too, my friend. Yeah, look forward to it. Take care. Take care. Brian J. Caram, of course, from Sentinel Newspapers and uh, CNN. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.